The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed and took the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he was naming them and where the man thought he could in the future. That was his name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no So I just wanted to start by, can um, uh, we talking about marriage this morning? I want to get a few things off my chest about, about weddings. Uh, let's be honest, weddings are, I don't know how you feel when you get invited to a wedding. I mean, there's the first thrill of, oh, great, a wedding. I love weddings. And then I start thinking all the negatives. Um, I think you should be smiling already. It's not just me. No. So, for example, uh, the first thing you see back now, actually, when we get invited to a wedding, is you start fussing about what everything's going to wear. That's quite stressful. And then on the day when you get to the wedding, um, however much you love the couple, there's things like waiting for the food um, while the speeches are happening. <laughs> so you think, I'm, I'm starving hungry here, and I'm giving a three hour speech, and I really just want to get to the food. It's probably giving you inside the needle and everything else, and all the weddings. So what you wear, there's, there's a speech. Oh, by the way, while I'm on speeches, the other thing I just want to say, well, Getting these on my chest. If you're the bride's father in the future, okay, the point of being the bride's father is not to spend half an hour just devastating her and making everyone remind her to see what to marry her. It's her day. Speak warning, speak lovingly of her, pick her up in front of everybody. And, and while on that, if you're a best man, the point of the best man speech is not to get everything. Why on earth is she marrying him? If he's that bad, have some humour thrown in, yes, some more. But it's their day. You know, Loving towards her. Um, you can see I've got quite a few issues. Can't you? Um, one of the things that happened the last wedding, the last couple of weddings you were at, I really recommend this for you. If you've got a future wedding coming up, if you're involved in planning it, or you're going to be married, close that magician. So the last thing you were at, so it, it's brilliant. It was just sitting there thinking, when's the food coming? And when are they going to get to the speeches? And you've got this guy coming around the table doing card tricks, master band tricks, up close. To distract you from the fact of starving. So, close up music is wonderful. Obviously, I'm ranting a bit here and waffling a bit, but um, weddings, there's pros and cons on there. We all know, we should know, what the most important bit of a wedding is. It's those, a wedding day, it's those few minutes during the wedding service where the vows are exchanged in the presence of God and in the presence of the other witnesses, where the husband and wife make those promises to each other. That's the important bit. Those few minutes and the marriage that lies ahead in all the years to come. Not all the dancing and food and frills and clothes. Wonderful as it is. And the speeches, wonderful as they sometimes are. No, it's about the marriage itself. And what we've got here in Genesis, 
which is why we're on about weddings. What we've got here is Passage of Genesis, is the first ever wedding. Actually, this is a real passage of firsts. You'd expect that in a book like Genesis to be using quite a few firsts already, time and space for the first time, land and seas for the first time, and so on. And we get a passage of yet more firsts here. I thought it might be helpful to look at some of the firsts, and it gives us context for the first marriage that we're going to be looking at, and that's our primary focus. So uh, don't panic, because some of these are quite short. I've got five firsts for you. And then we're going to finish this morning quite appropriately with a last. So it's going to be five firsts and a last. The first first is what we see here in Genesis chapter 2, is the first exercise in zoology. Verse 19 onwards. And the Lord had formed the man out of the ground, uh, sorry, formed out of the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. First exercise of zoology. This, is, well, this wasn't the work of just a few minutes, was it? What a task for Adam to have a massive chunk, presumably, at least, of the whole animal kingdom arrayed before them. And it wasn't just he had to come up with whimsical names, like, oh, Sarah, that's a nice sounding word for that particular animal. No, he had to give real thought to it. What's this animal like? How does it behave? What does it do? And he had to come up with a name for it, a name the animal. This is an aspect of Adam's rule over creation. Today, to us a few weeks ago. Human beings were made to rule this world lovingly on God's behalf, which were made in his image. This is an aspect of his rule, but in the wisdom of God, there's more to this name than the animals, as we'll see in a moment. But that's one of the first, such a first verse. The first exercise in zoology. Here's another first for you. The first recorded human words. Not any old words, they're poetry as well. The first poetry you see in scripture, we've already seen. Uh, a few weeks back, we flip back to Genesis 1, verse 27, and probably in your version, it's set out differently to the rest of the text to show its poetry. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God created them, male and female created them. That's the first bit of poetry in scripture. But that's poetry written down by Moses as these things are revealed to him. When you get to chapter 2, verse 23, this is in verse cards from Adam. This is from Adam's lips. This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And these are the first quoted words from a human being in history. Is it interesting, though, that both in chapter 127 and chapter 223, both bits of poetry are about the same great subject, whether from the lips of Adam or from Moses, they are about human beings, male and female. I think it's wonderful. The animals and the galaxies don't get poetry written for them. Our massive universe doesn't get poetry written for it. The seas and the sea creatures, no, no, none of that. Male and female in God's image get poetry written for And that's why I say that the focus of our section this morning has got to be man and woman in this marriage relationship, Adam and Eve. Remember that this section is a flashback, it's a zoom-in section. Chapter 1 has given us the grand sweep of God creating everything, and then chapter 2 is kind of slowing down, going back to step, and zooming in the creation of Adam, and then the creation of Eve. We've also heard the humans were made, male and female, in chapter 1, in God's image. Now we hear more about how that happened. We've seen in chapter 2 that Adam has been made from dust and from glory, because he's got God's breath. And he's been given his job, his vocation, as both a steward and a farmer, and if you remember from a few weeks back, a priest. 
to declare and spread God's glory to all of creation. But something else is needed before you can truly engage in vocation, before you can really do that job. Or I should say, not something, but someone. Which brings us to our next verse. The first not good in Scripture. The first negative assessment. As you go to Genesis 1, you keep seeing that God saw it as good. God saw it as good. He creates humankind. If you see, we're told in chapter 1, after he's created that candy, he saw it as very good. But this is the first time a negative is mentioned in the Bible. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Not good. That should be startling to us as you hear it. Now this doesn't mean that evil is yet present. Certainly not in humanity. And humanity is the focus here. Uh, Adam has done nothing wrong. There is no sin. There's no evil in humanity. So not good doesn't mean that. Not good doesn't mean that Adam is necessarily yet aware of this aloneness. God says it's not good that Adam's alone. Well, we're not sure if Adam's even aware of this aloneness yet. God's aware. And if God is highlighting it. In fact, it seems like Adam's task for naming animals, that first act of zoology, was thrilling. It's meant in part at least to highlight Adam's <laughs> aloneness. Adam's meant to be looking at all the animals and seeing what wonderful companions they are, and he's meant to see by the end of it, yeah, but there's a sense in which I haven't got everything I need. There's a sense in which I'm still alone. I don't think this aloneness is the same as loneliness. The forthcoming creation of Eve isn't about Adam's emotional needs being met because he feels lonely. It's not primarily about that, though wonderfully marriage does meet emotional needs. No, no, there's, there's more to it than that. He's alone because he needs someone else. But the, the great task is being called to. If you are married, you are, like Adam and Eve, married for God. Marriage is not first and foremost about your emotional needs to be met. It is about being married for God. This is why he makes Adam and Eve. So this, what I'm saying is this alone is showing the need for a helper. If you catch that name there, at the end of the naming of the, the, uh, the animals, end of verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. No suitable helper. As I've been reading and thinking about this the last few weeks, I've been wishing, they and I have been chatting about this passage too, wishing there was a better word, single word in English, to do justice to the Hebrew word. But this does not really. I guess helper is about as good as we can do. Because this is a big, strong word, helper. And to understand this word, helper, we need to read it in the context of the whole Bible, see what the Old Testament and the New Testament say about the husband and wife relationship. Paul, later on, would have a lot to say about how the marriage relationship is meant to work out. And Peter will have plenty to say about it too. But for right now, it's enough to note that helper isn't a weak little word. For example, the word helper is used several times of God being Israel's helper. That's the thought, isn't it? Obviously, he isn't a helper to Adam in exactly the same way as God is to Israel. She is not superior to Adam any more than Adam is superior to her. But the point is, this is a big, strong word, helper. This isn't about having Adam and the helper around the place, around the garden, to do menial tasks. 
He cannot carry on his divine calling without having this supper. So yeah, we'll touch on this before I end this morning. Yes, there is a, a God-ordained shape and order to marriage. For example, Paul talks in Ephesians 5 about headship of the husband and the submission of the wife. Yes, there's a, a shape and an order to marriage, but it's an order that is between two equals who are partners in the priestly work of worship and service. So that's the, the next verse we see, the first negative assessment, that Adam doesn't have his helper that he needs. Which brings us to our next verse, by my counsel, I think on our fourth, um, fourth verse. That's the first ever operation. The doctors are interested in this, but all should be. First ever operation. So the Lord God, verse 21, is linked to everything you've seen so far. So the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, he had taken out the man, and he brought her to the man. First ever operation, first ever divine anesthetic, and the first ever operation as whether it's, whether it's rib or side generally, out of Adam. God takes something, and with that, he fashions this helper, this partner that Adam needs. This sleep that Adam's put into doesn't seem to be about pain relief. Uh, I wonder if it's simply to guard the mystery a little bit for Adam. Adam has been prepared for Eve, he's been prepared to see that he needs Eve, but now Eve is prepared for Adam, but Adam doesn't get to see exactly how it happens. He is about afterwards to do this. Certainly Moses knows how it happens. But he doesn't get to see it. She is made from his side a new creation, not of the ground. And Adam's made of the ground, he isn't made of the ground. I, I said that a few weeks ago, by the way. I said that Adam and Eve formed from the dust of the ground. And uh, someone called me up on it and said, No, Eve wasn't. And they were right. Eve is made from Adam. What unity? What, what togetherness just from that very fact? Even the words of man and woman here that the Hebrew scholars tell us. Shows the closeness by the way they sound. In, in Hebrew, here, which speaks of man and woman, it's, it's ish for man and it's isha for woman. They, they sound very similar, even more similar than woman and man sound in English. And when Adam waits, he breaks into poetry that his prose won't do because of what he sees before him. He says, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Or more literally, <laughs> now at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The helper, who is as close as any other helper could possibly be, closer than any other helper could possibly be. But of course, this is more than just the first operation. And it's not the creation of a, just a business partnership. This is it. We've got to finally get there with our next verse. We have here the first marriage ceremony taking place. Taking place before God. We know this is the first wedding ceremony, the first marriage, because the NIV translates the word here, as most of these versions do, wife. It could be translated woman, but it's translated here as wife. Because in context, it's, it's obvious that's exactly who this woman is. Not just a woman, it's his woman, it's his wife. We know that this is the first marriage because when we read it with New Testament eyes, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, and the Lord Jesus himself, if you want to read about this later, in Mark 10 and in Matthew 19, quotes these verses, quotes these very words from Genesis to speak of marriage. 
This is the first wedding taking place for the first marriage to happen. You know, I don't think it's fanciful to see other elements of a wedding here. I, I know you'll tell me afterwards if you think I'm stretching too far and it's fanciful. You're a very brilliant church. You put me up on it. But I think I can make an argument for these things. I think there are other elements of a wedding here. For example, so these wonderful words. Verse 22, the Lord brought me a woman from the river, he taken out the man, and he brought her to the man. It's not just he makes uh, Eve out of Adam's side, and says, there you go, Adam, she's there, right next to her. He brings her to the man. God, I say this reverently, God, so to speak, walks Eve down the aisle, down that tree-lined aisle to the room. And then, just like we get in our weddings, our marriages these days, there's a public declaration from Adam, with God as his witness. Adam doesn't say, oh, great, thank you all. He breaks into his poetry, he declares it out loud in the first ever recorded human words, and he does it in the presence of God as his witness. This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, she is taken out of man. I've not heard those first words at a wedding recently, but they'd be quite appropriate, wouldn't they? In the vows. This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. Not because the wife has just been taken hungry, outside the room, but because they are, as Moses goes on to say in the following verse, one flesh. That is why Moses says in verse 24, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become, just like Adam and Eve were, one flesh. It's a, this really does look like a wedding. Like the weddings we go to accept. Much better. Not just because the lack of speeches and the need for wanting to get to the food. No, because and God himself, so to speak, is the father of the bride walking down the aisle. Did you notice, by the way, that Moses in verse 24 there applies the one flesh aspect? I hope he did, as I just said. He applies it to you if you're married, to all marriages. Every husband and wife must seriously one flesh once they're married. Not, as Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, he adds it, but he says they're not two married, they're one. What happens to you, husband, happens to your wife. What happens to your wife, happens to your husband. If you uh, truly want to care for your husband and wife, you care for yourself. If you truly want to love them properly, you love them as far as something you should give yourself up for. This togetherness means that what you do as one half of the marriage affects the other half, because you are one flesh. You are not two anymore. Doesn't mean your identity as individuals do not raise. You are still you, but you are you with another person. You are one person. So we've got here the first marriage. And this one, as I say, it's perfect. And I know if you know anything about marriages, because you've written one or you've seen one, you know that marriages in this world are perfect. This one is. What else do we learn about marriage? Just before we get to our, we finish off with our firsts and we get to our lasts, there are a few things to say about this heading of the first ever marriage. A few other things we see here and learn here quite clearly. Having said, so I hope you don't be contradicting myself, I'm just sort of adding a caveat. Having said that marriage is not first about Adam or, or me having my emotional needs met, it is certainly true that marriage is the covenant of companionship. Read Malachi 2, verse 14, because that's exactly what it's called. Malachi says to the people, speaking from God, speaking to the men on this occasion, she is your wife, she is a companion by the 
Marriage is a covenant relationship. It is covenant, but it's a solemn relationship based on vows and promises and witnesses. And it's a covenant, yes, of companionship. So it's not about me just eating my emotional needs, but it is about me having a companion. You note what is said there in the text. Eve is a suitable helper, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found, and so God makes Eve. Not just a helper, a partner, a suitable one. One corresponding to, one fit for Adam. The animals are wonderful company, but they're not the same as human human company. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. Eve is like him and a companion to him, and he is to her, in a way that nothing else in all creation could be. They're given to each other as companions for the journey. Kath is the only one who can say this. Kath has been the love of my life, most definitely my helper and Christian. But without that, my grief is fair. And if that's not our marriages, we need to pray that's the case. It's the covenant of companionship. And companionship means time. And I'm conscious I say this now as a pastor of a very busy, busy group of people. But companionship means time. You have to give time to a marriage so that it is that covenant. That's one of the things that matters. By the way, to add another PS in here, before I say something else about what we'll see about marriage, um, though this passage speaks about marriage, it also reminds us beyond marriage that companionship is something that God has created human beings for, full stop, whether they're married or sinned. We need others to serve God. You see this throughout the Bible, the New Testament especially. We need to be with other Christians, as Christians, we need to be part of the church, we need companionship in the journey. It's just that marriage happens to be a particularly wonderful, special example of companionship that human beings So that's one of the things you see about marriage here. Another thing is this, marriage is exclusive. Uh, Moses' PS about marriage here speaks about the, the man leaving his father and mother have been united to his wife, verse 24. It's quite a strong wording here. One of the older versions is leave and cleave. A man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And that word cleave, I mean, it's an old fashioned word, but it's good because it's sort of a bit, it seems stronger than united or even hold fast. It, it speaks of a super glue type bond. Actually, the word is used elsewhere in scripture of two metals being forged together. When a husband and wife get married, they leave their parents and they cleave to one another. Now, you've got to read this in context. Uh, there's a bit of nuance here. In Hebrew culture, the newly married group often stayed with their parents and lived with them, sometimes for years to come. Very difficult for some of us to know, but that's the reality for them that the group often stayed with his parents. So, leave didn't mean just leave the home physically, it didn't mean having nothing to do with his parents anymore. Scripture still said to him, honor your father and mother. But it's a strong word, leave. There's a sense in which he had to leave. She had to leave their parents and be bonded to each other. Relatively speaking, he must leave his parents because of the covenant closeness to his wife. No other relationship, and I say this now to parents as well, no other relationship, sorry kids, can take priority over this one or impose order on this one or exercise control over this one. In terms of human relationships, this covenant of companionship comes first. 
So it's not exclusive in the sense that it ignores others, it doesn't It's not exclusive in the sense that parents don't love their children and care for them. We're commanded to do that too. It's not exclusive in the sense that one can see this sometimes, don't you? Once someone couple gets married, they don't have anything to do with their old friends anymore. Whether married or, or single, especially the single they don't have anything to do with that's that's wrong, that's not good. It doesn't mean ignoring others, but it means there is an exclusivity to this relationship you don't see in other relationships. This is a solemn and close covenant relationship, loved and protected by God. Jesus adds the words in Matthew 19. Go and those who God's put together there, no man separate. You don't want to be the one breaking up the marriage. And I'm, I'm speaking of those outside marriage and those within the marriage. Jesus sees it very solemnly. He sees this covenant of companionship as a precious and powerful and beautiful thing and is to be protected. Another thing we see about marriage here is marriage is between male and female. It might seem incredibly obvious. Some of you might be thinking why am I mentioning that? Um, well, I mentioned it first of all because it's in the text. And secondly, because it needs to be heard in these days. Marriage is between male and female, the God just did. Male and female as he has made them. This is God's, as you can see all the way through Genesis so far, this is God's world and we have to live in it, God's way and for his glory. And our society can seek and is seeking to redefine gender and marriage all it likes, but the, the reality is that God defines marriages. Marriage between one male and one female. And the tragedy is that as our society tries to define marriage differently, it's missing out on God's best. Is failing to live out the better story that God has written for humanity. And marriage is part of that story, and it's marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage is also, we see here, uh, a vital part of God's blueprint, but I really need to add this. There's a lot of PS's this morning, no, I need to add this PS. It is a vital part of God's blueprint, but it is not everything. Because sometimes I think you can hear, you can hear this message in churches because marriage is, is this glorious, solemn thing, this beautiful thing, where you can sometimes hear the message you get is, so if you're not married, sorry, you've got God's second best. And that's not a biblical picture either. Marriage is the divine institution through which humans are going to be fruitful and multiplying for the earth and ruling on God's behalf. This is the relationship on which spanning human society is going to be built. But earthly marriage is not the be-all and end-all of human existence and fulfillment. It's central to God's plan and purposes, but it's not the only part of God's beautiful blueprint. It's the only setting in which God intends human beings to experience the good gift of sex, for example. Paul's very clear on this in 1 Corinthians and other places. That the place of sexual expression, sexual enjoyment, is in marriage between one man and one woman, and only there. It's very clear about that. So marriage is all those things, yes. But what we also need to hear is that marriage isn't everything. Also in our culture, they need to hear that sex isn't everything. The message that we seem to hear constantly is that to be a fulfilled and complete human being, you need to be in a sexual relationship. Whether that's with someone of the same gender or not, and however you might define gender, as long as you're in a sexual relationship, then you can feel you're a fulfilled human being, and nothing scripturally can be further from the truth. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to try and spend some time on this on the podcast today tonight, he's clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that the calling of some Christians is to be married, and the calling of other Christians 
is not for you. And no one of those callings is easier or harder than the other. The difficulties and freedoms are simply different. Both marriage and singleness are spheres in which we as Christians are called to be priests within the royal priesthood of the church, that is the family of God that God has given to all Christians. That is our role when we're married or single. If you're married, that is a wonderful thing. And sometimes it's a hard thing. If you're single, that is a wonderful thing. And sometimes that's a hard thing. But married and single are part of one family in the church. You must constantly remember that and serve each other well. It is. Incidentally, a book by Sam Albury, Seven Myths About Singleness, Dave and I read it recently. But I would really recommend that. If you're married, read that book. Sam Albury, Seven Myths. If you're single, read that book by someone. It is fantastic in terms of speaking to how we live as family in the church, whether married or single. So that's a bunch of things we see back around. There's even more to be said, but I really should do more. And we'll just have to add some stuff in the podcast. But I have to finish and zoom back out with our last point, which is a last. We've had our five verses, and here's a last that I'm going to finish it. All of this, when you step back and you zoom out and you look at what the whole of the Bible has to say, all of this that we see about marriage this morning points us to the last marriage there will ever be, and that we will all as Christians be joined in. The New Testament is clear that in heaven, I think you have realized this, we should be upset or believe us, in heaven we will no longer be married. I suspect that after the Lord Cat will still be my best friend. I'll have the most memories of it after all. But marriage between us as human beings in heaven will be an end. Why is that? Because the Bible is also clear that all Christians will one day finally and joyfully be married to their bridegroom, Jesus. You think of the most glorious wedding you beat, the most joyful day you experience. It is nothing compared to the day of the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus, when he returns. And perfectly and finally united to his bride, the one who's betrothed to him. And that's us. So, guys, men as well, if you're a Christian, you're bride. You're part of the bride, the betrothed to Christ. Marriage is ultimately about more than humanity populating this fallen world. It is a living picture of God's relationship with his people, specifically Jesus' relationship with his church. I have time to read the whole passage. But let me just read a few words to you from Ephesians chapter 5. I mentioned it earlier. As Paul speaks to husbands and wives about how they should serve each other and love each other well in the marriage relationship, he says this Ephesians 5 verse 31. For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's saying that initial marriage between Adam and Eve and any marriage you know today in the church is meant to be this picture of Jesus' relationship with his church. Paul in Ephesians 5 isn't making a massive leap. This is the culmination of a picture being painted throughout Scripture. Jewish readers of Genesis, a bit later on, after Moses' time, have read these words Genesis 2 and thought of the way that God in the prophets, for example, pictures himself as the husband, the husband of the bridegroom. Of his people. Jesus would speak of himself as the bridegroom. Matthew 22, Matthew 25. 
And his aged Apostle John, when he received a vision in Revelation, which showed how the, the betrothal of the church to the groom Jesus would be beautifully consummated on the day when Jesus returns to this world for his people, his bride, to experience the unending wedding celebration of the Lamb. Revelation 3. This is why, whether you're single or married this morning, you need to be, we must all be praying for the marriages to come, especially the Christian marriages to know, including our own. We must idolize them and make them everything. Christ is the one who completes them and heals my every sin and meets my every need. Not We must idolize marriage, but we must see marriage for what it is and pray for marriages. Because they are fallen but real pictures of Jesus and his love for the church. And for that reason, the devil hates them. The devil hates marriage. And the devil especially hates Christian marriage. Because he knows what it's lived well with the Holy Spirit's help. It pictures Jesus' love for the church. We must pray for our marriages. We must work hard, as the Holy Spirit helps us, to live out our marriages in the way that the New Testament tells us to. To support marriages so that they can be what the New Testament says they are. So by the way, um, if you're thinking this morning, well, I'm married, my marriage doesn't match up to that. Well, the preacher can say the same. You need grace in the marriages. Uh, and there is grace. That's the wonderful thing. When we look at our marriages and see how we've fallen short, well, we can know that God, the Holy Spirit, helps us to live this way. Marriage is a glorious thing. But the final marriage will be wonderful beyond imagining. We will all be there celebrating with our groom, our bridegroom, Jesus. When I think of those joyful weddings, I don't know, it's takes my breath away. But I will know a better one, in which I am part of the bride, no less, a better one which will start on that day and which will never Lord, we, we thank you for this, this thing called marriage that you have given to humanity. Uh, for the way that it is a blessing to the world and to society. Um, but even more so, Lord, we thank you for marriages because, imperfectly as it may be the case, they point to it at their best what your relationship with Jesus is with your bride. Help us, Lord, to pray for our marriages, to live them out well, to support them well, and help us to see the picture they paint of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus, and what it will be like on that day when you come back and we see you face to face and enter into the eternal wedding supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus.